once he got big enough to kind of fight back a little, when he was just a puppy, he just kind of got put in his place all the time. <laughs> what kind of dogs are they? <laughs> well, Ollie, the older one is, uh, I mean, they're both mutts, but um, Ollie's like a mostly border collie in spirit, but looks like a Dalmatian. Like he's got the black spots and the and like the patch and everything. He looks a little bit like Wishbone, but just like three times the size, right? I just like, like the idea of a dog being a breed in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, in that, I mean, he's like a herding dog. He like doesn't like people to get up and move, and he's mm. like, like sounds the alarm when people come over and all that. That's like one of our cats. Hello and welcome to this week's EduPunk podcast. This is Craig Biderman, your host. Uh, this is your one-stop podcast for everyday educators and folks who are disrupting the world of education. Today, I have one of my longest friends uh, on the podcast. Uh, this is my friend Greg Jungworth. Uh, we go back to high school. That's how far back we go. Playing poker games every weekend. Uh, it often came down to him and I, so we know each other pretty well. We know each other's tells, we know how to push each other's buttons. And in this episode, we actually have a fantastic, honest, genuine adult conversation, probably for the first time in our entire life. Because <laughs> I hadn't seen Greg in many years. The last time I saw him actually was three years ago at his wedding, which was awesome. And yeah, we get into what it's like him being a doctor, which is super interesting, and uh, what his thoughts are on the recent healthcare debacle that was going on in um, uh, in Washington. So before that, I want to just say thanks to folks who've been reaching out and letting me know what they think about the podcast. Really helpful. I'm going to be shifting up some of the format moving forward. Katie's probably going to do some uh, episodes in the near future. And yeah, we're just going to keep moving, moving along, making changes and making sure this thing stays fresh and keeps folks interested. Tell your friends, rate, subscribe, uh, spread the word. Anyone you think would be interested in listening to this podcast, please let them know. And if you would like to be a guest, if you think you're uh, an interesting educator that does some really cool stuff, hey, let's let's chat. Reach out to me on my website, craigbiteman.com, where you might have been directed through to to get to this uh, episode. Follow it on social media at EduPunksPod, A D U P U N X Pod. It's pretty straightforward, and that's about it. Oh, this week's music sponsor is Near Mint Records. You're going to hear some music from Boy Rex throughout this episode. One of my favorite albums of the year so far, if not my favorite album so far this year. Um, I'm super thankful for their support, and I hope you enjoy the music throughout this episode, and I hope you go support Near Mint Records. And now, let's get into this conversation with my old buddy, Parader Gade. Greg Jungworth.
Well, I am sitting digitally with my buddy Greg Jungworth, who's over in Seattle. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great, Craig. Thanks for having me on. I like that our names rhyme. I think we've made comments about that ever since high school. I, I think it's going to maybe get a bit confusing for your listeners, but I'll try to enunciate. Yeah. Uh, I think I think they'll be okay, but it did get worse when we had multiple Gregs or multiple Craigs in the group. This is true. Back in the day. And I reference back in the day because Greg and I do go way back. We went to high school together. Back in Kaiser, Oregon. Back in Kaiser, Oregon. You've been all over, though. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, started off, obviously, growing up in Oregon. Moved to uh, Indiana for four years. Did my undergrad at University of Notre Dame. And then moved back to Oregon for a year because, you know, job market and having to live at home for a little while. And while I was getting into med school. So then I moved back to Ohio for four years and did my medical school at Ohio State University and now back in the Northwest up in Seattle trying to finish up my family medicine residency. Yeah, you were one of the few of our group to like embrace leaving immediately from like high school. Uh, I remember when you got your acceptance to Notre Dame, we were like, wait, what? Someone's gonna leave. <laughs> I was uh, I was all about it. I think oh, you were. <laughs> Eighteen year old Greg needed to uh, needed to hit the road and see a, a few more sites. And then you ended up staying in the Midwest. What did you uh, did you find some stuff to enjoy about the Midwest? I think the Midwest is a really nice place to live. Actually, um, if you can get adjusted to the mugginess, which only takes about a week or so, um, everyone there is very friendly. There's not very many mountains to be had, uh, with apologies to your Midwest listeners, uh, <laughs> something I've grown rather accustomed to, uh, out here out West, but, um, but it's a, it's a good spot. I think, uh, I didn't specifically intend to, um, end up in the Midwest again, but, uh, fairly lucky that I did when it comes to medical school, you pretty much need to go wherever you have the opportunity. Oh yeah. That, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you feel like your your college experience, how do you feel like your college experience was influenced by being in the Midwest coming from the Pacific Northwest? Uh, well, it certainly made me very much an outsider, which I kind of enjoyed that role. Um, very few people had ever met somebody from the state of Oregon before, and I uh, rather unabashedly played up the lumberjack beaver state uh sort of uh angle yes <laughs> yes <laughs> texas who who was convinced for several hours albeit though she was slightly intoxicated that i really did live in a log cabin with a pet beaver <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> i love that <laughs> I, I i'm fairly certain she wasn't just humoring me because she acted very shocked when i told her the truth oh <laughs> It's always hard when you have to break a somewhat intoxicated person's heart. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I was a bartender uh, in Corvallis. I've, I've had to break some hearts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you are now a, a doctor, which is so weird to me uh, because I've known you since we were like four, 13 or 14. But when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? Was there a moment? 
Well, was it Doogie Hauser? No, Doogie Hauser. I I certainly did not grow up thinking I was going to be a doctor, um, which the longer I'm I'm around this field, I I find is a pretty common story. A lot of people are sort of born into it. They have a lot of family members, and they kind of follow in those footsteps. Um, I didn't really have any family members who had done that, or really know anybody aside from pretty much my own pediatrician who had been a doctor, so kind of blazed that trail on my own. Um, when I moved over to uh, Notre Dame for my undergraduate, I was actually planning to go into engineering, uh, but I only made it one semester through that and kind of looked down the road and thought that uh, I probably needed to be doing something with a little bit more uh, face-to-face time. I think I'm a reasonably personable and, uh, and social creature, and I I didn't think that the engineering life was going to be for me, so I made the transition and thought it would be a good fit and was lucky enough to really enjoy what I was doing and kind of take root. Did it take you any amount of like time to kind of catch your bearings with what it would look like to get into the medical field? Um, it just kind of comes to you progressively. Uh, I would say those people who know doctors in their family who have that sort of role model built in do have a bit of a leg up in sort of knowing what to expect uh, because it's very different than you think it is. Uh, if your only doctor role models are on scrubs or house or some show like that. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, once you, once you hit your clinical years in medical school, then you actually get to dive in and start finding out what it's actually all about instead of just sitting in a classroom and reading books all day long. Um, oh. oh yeah. I bet it's com- completely different. Uh, what was that process like for you? What was going to med school like? Well, going to medical school was fantastic. Yeah. Um, it was sort of like college 2.0 in, in that I had moved back to Oregon and been living there for a year. And I was just so excited to get off on the next adventure and go see a new place. And, you know, it's just like, um, it's just like any other situation where you're thrust into a, a situation where you're, you have a cohort, you have a group of people that you're going to end up spending a lot of time with, almost like <laughs> summer camp. Um, and, and you just run in the same circles and, and basically kind of have some prepackaged friends and everyone there was great and smart and just wanted to work hard during the day and, and go and do fun stuff at night. It was a, it was a good time. That's awesome. Uh, what was going, uh, to Ohio state like, cause it's, it's a mega campus and I've been there a couple of times and it's huge, but I guess it, was is Notre Dame. I've never been to Notre Dame. Is it like pretty huge too? I would say they're fairly comparable in okay. size, um, except that Notre Dame has about a fourth as many students, so it's a little bit more spread out. Um, no, at, at Ohio State, the the graduate medical campus is very much segregated from oh, the Ohio State of the undergrads, um, so we we would stick to our, our end mostly. I mostly operated within about three square blocks where my classes were and my in the health sciences library and that kind of stuff. And I just lived a five minute walking distance from there. So, um, it's a, it's a very different creature than, than just going to be at Ohio state like any other student. Um, and I mean, I think we, we both have a similar uh, path in that we both took a year off between undergrad and graduate school, which I personally 
feel like I benefited so much having a year off from school. Do you feel the same way? I would say there were good and, and bad things about it. I, um, I kind of wish I had been able to keep up the momentum and just, and keep working through. Obviously, uh, I was a little bit disappointed in that I didn't take the year off entirely by choice. It turns out it's kind of hard to get into medical school. And so I needed to <laughs> take a year and sort of buff up my, my resume and do a little extra work. And, and second time was the charm, fortunately. Um, I learned a lot about medicine in um, sort of the personal aspect of it because I spent that year training and then working as a certified nursing assistant in a nursing home and sort of seeing, uh, seeing what long-term care was and, and sort of what chronic debility and chronic diseases could, could do to people. But um, I, have, I think I appreciate that more now looking back and seeing the perspective that I have at the time. I sort of felt like I was spinning my wheels and I was just ready to go do do the next thing. Hmm. Now, how did you, throughout the process of grad school, kind of land on doing family medicine? Is that Was that a choice or did you kind of just like, yeah, this, this sounds like something I would want to do? It was, it was always the plan for me. Okay. When, I, when I made the decision to go towards medicine in the first place, I was always... Um, I was always interested in in it from the benefit to society sort of service level of things. Um, I wanted to be in a specialty where I got to build lots of personal relationships and have a pretty big impact on people's lives. And um, I always knew that primary care was the area that had the biggest mismatch between providers and the actual need. And I was pretty excited to go and try to help balance that out a little bit and do my part. Um, Going through medical school, obviously, you, you encounter a lot of different specialties and you see a lot of things that that would be interesting and would be fun. I did, you know, think about specializing um, in, in endocrinology or neurology, perhaps. Um, did briefly think about being an obstetrician instead, um, but at the end of the day, I didn't think any of that was really for me. I don't know uh, what that is. And, oh, and like an OBGYN. Uh, I don't... How an do you obstetrician obstetrician okay sorry i had no idea what that was <laughs> from okay. from the t- i had never heard the term i know OBGYN, but um okay yeah the uh the allure of getting to deal with mostly healthy young patients and their cute babies was was high for a while but the malpractice insurance is out of control so Oh, wow. Yeah, I've actually, I haven't thought about that because I guess at any point you need to be prepared, like if you get sued, right? Yeah. So, so there's the way malpractice insurance works is you can either have, um, coverage that covers a certain, like anything that happens within the amount of time that you have the insurance in effect, which seems like the logical thing, but there's a second way that it works where it only applies if if the lawsuit in question is filed during the time that your insurance is active, um, even if uh, even if the event that you're being sued for happened earlier. And so, um, what what you have to do is get something called a tail, where uh, it follows you along and it covers you if something that you did while you were still insured by them um, pops up years down the road. And the tail for an OBGYN is 18 years because that's how long until that 
patient that you delivered becomes an adult and everything is officially not your fault anymore. Hold, hold on. <laughs> so you can be responsible for what happens to a person 18 years after they're born? If there's a, if they can make an argument that you, uh, that some neurologic deficit could possibly be related to a traumatic birth or, or something like that, then yeah. Or some failure in, in your part to help screen for birth defects or get those properly treated, something like that. Wow. I've, I have, I never, I did not know that that was a thing. Clear, clearly I'm like very confused right now, but I get, it makes sense. It, it it does in one way. I think uh, I think if it takes that many years for things to show up, um, you have to start thinking about other potential causes. But yeah, no, I, I imagine <laughs> we might get into some of that later too. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, your work at Valley Medical Center. You're uh, a, a resident. What, what's what's your title? Residential doctor. I would, yeah, I'd say I'm a resident physician. Resident um, physician, and uh, which is essentially the equivalent of saying doctor. I don't yeah. it's just, never heard anybody phrase it exactly that way. Yeah, uh, yeah so I'm a I'm a third year family medicine resident. I uh, still technically am, am under training, even though I am officially a doctor. Um, which means that I get to practice medicine. I get to see patients. I get to write prescriptions and do procedures, but it's just under the supervision of more experienced uh, faculty who I consult when I need extra help and um, who are always kind of looking through my work to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, I got one year one year left, and, and next summer I will graduate and, and be fully independent at that point. Yeah. And will you likely stay on where you are? Or at that time do you have to like go start looking? Yeah, well, now right about now is the time to start looking. Um, I haven't done any applications, but it's people in my class, some of them have already signed contracts and oh boy, uh, and have jobs lined up for next year already. So the the time is nigh. Get on it, buddy. Uh, right what makes the work at the Valley Medical Center like unique compared to like larger hospitals or medical centers? Well, I would say uh, one of the benefits in doing my residency at a, a community hospital like that, um, as opposed to a large academic center, um, particularly in family medicine and when you're training in primary care is, uh, most of what I, uh, most of what I get to see, um, is really, it's really just us on the campus. And so if somebody comes in with interesting heart disease or, or, or something that I can learn something from, there aren't cardiology residents and fellows there to swoop in and take take that learning away from me. So it's pretty much just us. We see everybody of all stripes and all different kinds of, of problems. Um, and it's it's nice to be a part of a, sort of a smaller program like that. We're a bit more smaller and nimble. Um, if there's something about our curriculum which is not working, you know, resident education is suffering for one reason or another. We pretty much just talk about it one month and, and whatever changes need to happen are pretty much in place by the meeting next month. Um, we don't have a large unwieldy bureaucracy that we have to convince and go all the way up the chain. So we 
very much self self driven and and self governed in that in that way, which I really enjoy. That sounds like a a really like equitable space to be working in, especially to be like working and learning in. I imagine. Yes. Yeah. It's uh the obviously our not just our fellow residents who we work long hours with, but we work pretty long hours with the faculty as well. They're extremely uh, supportive of us. They they make their lives maybe a little bit harder than they need to be so that they can educate us. And, and it's nice being on a first-name basis with, with people who have gone ahead and who who you can respect and, and try to model your career after. So we um, certainly wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Oh, for sure. And what types of relationships do you get to build with some of your patients there? I guess the whole community feel has me thinking one way. I want to hear what your what your experience is like. Well, fortunately, um, as as it applies to primary care, I feel that uh, maybe my experience is not all that different from how a primary care doctor might function at a large institution like um, like at the Ohio State. Um, University or some other big state um, state based hospital. Um, when you're in the exam room, it's really just you and the patient and getting to know each other. And as long as um, you have a good rapport um, and you have the opportunity to keep seeing them and follow up, I think you're going to be able to build those relationships no matter what. It's really just about if you if you and the patient are both there to uh, work with each other, um, identify some problems, and come up with some solutions to work on their health, um, you can do that in lots of different situations. Oh, good. It sounds like you get to um, help make those decisions together then. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. I would say one of my, one of the favorite things I have is being uh, in family medicine is I actually get to um, provide care to literally every member of somebody's family. So I have a <laughs> one, one family of a, uh, a young uh, single mom and her three small children. And uh, unfortunately for those kids, they've all had a number of things pop up over the last couple of years where they've uh, needed tonsillectomies and uh, treatment for ADD and those sorts of things. Um, so we've had, we've had unfortunately frequent contact, whereas normally I usually see my children about once a year just for their, their checkups. Um, but it's really been nice to um, know all of them and get to see them coming back and watch them grow up and, and um, see them kind of transition from being afraid of the of the big scary doctor to really smiling and and being more excited to see me. Mm-hmm. I don't, the words I I would use to describe you are not big or scary. So. <laughs> okay, gonna take a quick break from this chat with Greg to get into my first ad for my buddy Matt Palmer. I mentioned him in the second episode, I believe. He's a designer for all of your needs. Really, he does a a, a lot of different styles. He's done some really cool posters. He does a lot for bands. He does a lot for uh, logos for companies if you need something like that done. He does festival posters. Uh, If you are a band, if you are an office uh, in student affairs even that's looking to get some to commission some design work talk to Matt he just quit his full-time job to do this as his full-time gig to be a full-time designer 
And that's amazing. You've got to respect someone who's willing to go out and do something for themselves, by themselves, with the passion and desire to uh, support themselves with their art. And that's amazing. I support that 100%. So here I am trying to get Matt some more design work. So if you need, need some work done, reach out to him. He's at mattpalmermedia.com. You can connect with him there. That's just Matt, M-A-T-T, Palmer, P-A-L-M-E-R, media.com. You can learn about him, all the work that he does with his production company, Plucking You Promotions, and you can see his resume. You can learn everything else about him. You can check out his kick-ass portfolio. But yeah, if you want some work, some design work done and you don't have the time or desire to do it yourself or have anyone that you know to do it, uh, he's he'll do it. He'll do it and he'll work with you. So check out Matt Palmer Media. Let's get back to this chat with Greg. It's going to get good because we're going to chat about healthcare now. Oh, yeah. All right, now let's dig into some of this healthcare stuff. Uh, it's it's been uh, kind of a mess over the last month, don't you think? <laughs> it's it's been so so crazy that I've hardly been able to keep up with all the different bills and and variations that have been going on. I Try mean, like, with all the like recent attempts by the GOP to reveal to repeal the Affordable Care Act. We've seen a lot of people concerned about losing their insurance, um, kind of unknowingly uh, afraid of what's even going to happen with a repeal or replace bill. What were the perceptions around you and your colleagues when all this stuff was going on um, or is still going on? Is there like a similar uncertainty or do you guys just kind of like do your thing? Well, you know, just like uh, any other industry that's, possibly being threatened by major legislation. I think in the day-to-day, all there is to do is, is put your head down and do your work and take care of your patients and just do your best. But um, it's certainly a very frequent topic of conversation. I would say the vast majority of physicians that I work with uh, are very supportive of the Affordable Care Act. We really don't want to see uh, it repealed at all. If anything, I think it would be to our tremendous benefit to have it expanded and supported a bit more. Um, there's a there's very few aspects, and I you know I've heard some debate over the medical device tax, which which I haven't. I'm not extremely educated in myself, so I won't try to explain it here. You know, there's a couple of things that were included that perhaps um, we would be able to stand to see go, but the things, the core values, the you know expanding the Medicaid, um, letting young twenty twenty something year olds be still able to on their parents' insurance and uh, coverage for pre-existing conditions and expanding access um, and resources for primary care to help prevent disease rather than treat it once it's been simmering for 20 years, all that sort of thing. Um, That's essentially what my whole career is aligned towards doing is trying to prevent those diseases. And I, I would love to have as many resources available as possible. Oh, for sure. And it seems like a lot of the conversation was around um, Medicare, Medicaid, and pre-existing conditions. Um, folks that were that are some people who 
can't even help some of the conditions that they have are some of the most vulnerable by the um, changes or the, 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 the repeal um, legislature that was being proposed. What were some of the, I guess, concerns that you were seeing popping up around um, those issues? Well, you know, on the, on the one hand, uh, Medicaid covers way more than just lower income people, which I think is the uh, perception of it. It certainly does that, and, and that's an extremely important role that it plays, but it also plays an extremely important role in um, insuring children who otherwise don't have access to health care, um, and also um, insuring disabled persons who were, whether their disability occurred at birth or, or later, um, making sure that they have access to health care because an employment-based uh, health health insurance structure is not going to work for them, um, but they can't go without insurance until they turn 65 and Medicare kicks in. Um, so absolutely worried about um, losing that sort of Medicaid expansion. I was just reading about how even though Medicaid has always been doing its work to try and um, keep children insured, after the Affordable Care Act was expanded and, and parents of those children were able to start having access, it actually increased the amount of uh, coverage for children as well. And really most of the good work that we're going to be able to do in primary and preventative care is um, intervening early in people's lives when they're still in their in their adolescent years and teaching them good sort of health education and, and working on, um, you know, good healthy habits that they can carry forward and educate them, educating them about the dangers of drug use and, and tobacco use and preventing those problems rather than trying to rescue them from heart attacks when they're 60 and they've they've had several decades of, of that exposure behind them. Oh, yeah. And I mean, a big part of my job is prevention work as well with college students. And there are times when um, I'll go do a workshop on like uh, eating healthy and I'll hear students that have absolutely no fruits or vegetables in their diet and a lot of what they're consuming is a lot of sugar and a lot of caffeine. And I'm like, y'all, your hearts can't handle that. Like, We got to talk about some of these choices. <laughs> Trying to save you a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, something that I myself experienced in college. Um, when you, when you are released from the supervision of, of your parents and, and, <laughs> and eat whatever it is you, you want it does take a little while to realize that maybe those are not the best long-term decisions that you could be making. Oh, no, not at all. But we talk about, or you're talking about um, making sure we get coverage for folks, I guess, or, or even pre preventative care younger in life, which makes me think of some of the, um, uh, the issues that were coming up with lifetime maximums because these existed before the Affordable Care Act was put in place um, where people could um, kind of essentially max out on their lifetime, uh, uh, I guess, premiums of, of health care. Uh, but now, but when the Affordable Care Act came in, it took that away. And now they were trying to reimpose these. Do I have that understood? That is that is my understanding as well. Um, I will say I will say the idea of a lifetime maximum is completely absurd. 
from my point of view because it's uh, first off, it has to be just some arbitrary number that the insurance company is allowed to come up with, and uh, very rarely is a patient in any position to be able to stop receiving health care um, once they have hit that maximum. No one is approaching that maximum through through any choice. It's only through a number of expensive surgeries or ICU stays or disability related needs and um, you're not you're not billing your insurance anyway for elective plastic surgery or or things that you have a choice of. No one's hitting their lifetime maximum by using the ED to treat their cold, you know, unless they're going every single week. Um, so I think I think that in particular is a, a protection that we need to see carry forward. Yeah, because I one of my one of my good friends, actually the f- first person I interviewed on this podcast, Kevin Forch, um, like his daughter um, was born with uh, an issue, and we talked about. Uh, with a birth issue and we talked about this um in in the first podcast where he was concerned that um his daughter would be maxed out before she's even become like an adult because of uh all of the needs that they needed to just take care of her to live um and she's not even three i don't even think so that's that's a very real concern there are a lot of people you know Premature babies who who are born at 24 weeks who who live for three or four months in the NICU while they get big enough to be able to thrive on their own at home. I mean, the the cost of a NICU stay and that sort of supervision and the interventions going on there, um, watching out for the heart conditions and the lung conditions and the gut conditions that go with being so premature. Um, yeah, I could see somebody hitting an arbitrary cap easily before they're even even discharged that's so so bizarre to me (laughs) fortunately those are very rare situations in the scale of the population but you know not so rare that we don't all at least know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody in a situation like that well and it kind of brings up something we were talking about um when we were first planning this conversation, we were talking about uh, insurance costs because you don't genuinely know how much things are going to cost when you're just suggesting uh, a service for someone to, to, to take care of whatever's ailing them. Um, how does that impact your work? Like, do you even have a moment to even consider that? There are some situations where we are privy to some cost information and we're allowed to you know, bring that under consideration, but to a large extent, you're absolutely right. Um, there was, well, there was an interesting, uh, episode of Adam ruins everything fairly recently. Um, and he started off by complaining about the charge master and the arbitrary fees that certain hospitals or physicians can, can charge for the same services and how, how it's usually not something the patient has access to knowing what that's going to be ahead of time. And actually your treating physician doesn't really know what those, fees are either. Most of the time, I am ethically obligated to make the proper medical decision. And if that means I think you need an EKG, then you need an EKG. I'm not the one who decided how much that gets to cost. If you need a CT scan, you need a CT scan. And that's my recommendation. If you need surgery, then you need surgery. All that is, is I just, I just go about my day making what I consider to be proper medical decisions. And and when I say the word proper, I do mean that I imply not doing unnecessary testing, trying to eliminate waste whenever I can, and 
not doing things just for the sake of doing them, but um, also wanting to make sure that I'm not missing a potentially life-threatening condition in somebody or or make sure if I can intervene and, and help them to suffer less, I'm going to go ahead and do that. Or if I can potentially maximize their lifespan by controlling their blood sugars if they have diabetes or keeping their um, keeping their heart disease under control. If it sometimes it's expensive to control someone's heart disease, it takes a cardiologist and a and a really expensive cath lab and and some stents in your in your arteries in your heart and um, all that thing all that stuff costs money. But but if we can make a, a difference, then we usually recommend that we go in and try to make that difference. The only time when I'm really having a lot of discretion is um, usually in choices of medication where you need to be on some kind of medication that lowers your cholesterol, but if the if your insurance company tells me that one of them is going to cost you $4 and one of them is going to cost you 400 very rarely do I, I have a strong opinion that you need to be on the more expensive one. Hmm. Now, you brought up wanting to talk a little bit about the individual mandate. One of the ideas when, when the Affordable Care Act was rolled out was, was that through the use of an individual mandate, um, we would significantly decrease the number of uninsured Americans, which was a pretty uh, huge problem back in the early 2000s. Actually, when I was in undergraduate and I was a pre-med looking towards medical school, you know, there was no Affordable Care Act at that point. We didn't know what that would look like, but we did know that there was between 20 and 30 million uninsured Americans and that they were all basically a time bomb of, of health issues that were not being resolved and usually not being treated in a in a very efficient way um, when somebody when somebody goes 30 40 years without having access to a, a physician or any meaningful medical care um, they often become very expensive towards the end of their life um, when they become covered by Medicare or when they make frequent use of the emergency department because the emergency department has to see them when they show up and has to provide them some sort of care and if they're making too frequent use of that system wouldn't it have been more efficient and a better use of resources to just keep them healthy when they were younger? Um, so the idea behind the individual mandate was to get people to have that coverage so that they would use it even if they thought that they could save themselves some money by sacrificing their health and, and not getting covered and not going to see the doctor. Um, the other end of that spectrum is um, in order to keep premiums and costs down for disabled or, you know, otherwise um, ill, chronically ill persons, uh, the only way to help keep their cost down is to really spread that cost out over the scope of, you know, of an entire population. Um, because if you get rid of that mandate and all the healthy people self-select out, then the only people left in, in the pool who are paying premiums are all the people using lots of resources and it becomes very expensive very quickly. Man, it all just sounds so ridiculously complicated. Like, it doesn't feel like there's really any easy answer to any of this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless you have them. <laughs> um, one, one thing that I, I personally am, am eager to explore, although, you know, just like any other situation, I would want to see the specifics and see how it's rolled out. But the idea of this, single-payer coverage or the, the Medicare for all um, would really, you know, first off, it would essentially take away the individual mandate by just giving people insurance when they 
don't even ask for it and they're not paying their individual premium so much as they're just paying taxes. I think that might be a little bit easier of a pill to swallow for people. Um, and then from the other end of that, it would, it would eliminate a tremendous amount of overhead um, because the, the cost and effort that is put into getting different ap approvals and authorizations from dozens of different insurance companies who all have varying levels of their plans and, and care, um, it takes an alarming amount of my day. I'd say usually between one to two hours after I'm done seeing all of my patients, I'm spending doing paperwork and trying to get them the care and the extra services that they need, um, which really adds up very quickly. Um, what do you think could be some of the drawbacks of the singer single payer option? And do you even, do you think it's realistic? Cause I mean, it, it was thrown around a bunch by Bernie who I believe both of us supported, but there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of conversation of what that actually looked like here. Right. And, um, I think, I think it's realistic. I think it's something that can happen, although it would obviously be a major transition. We've had major, it was, it was a major transition to have Medicare implemented and social security implemented also. Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing is, um, difficult from a more, it's more difficult from a political standpoint than it is from a logistical standpoint. Okay. I think, so, I think someone could devise a system, uh, where everyone did get coverage and um, received an adequate amount of coverage. Um, and I, I qualify that because not everybody can have the Mercedes-Benz of all healthcare, And um, I, that, that would be just be unaffordable. That would probably amount to greater than the entire GDP of our country, right? So, <laughs> the Unaffordable Care Act. And, and I think that's that theoretical possibility is something that, that, freaks people out a little bit, but um, if we're able to create a system where appropriate medical care is given to people who need it in a streamlined and efficient process, I think that the, the cost and the, the bill of that would obviously be rather high, but, but something that's worth it and, and would pay a lot of dividends to society in other ways um, as their health improves and as the um, security of, of having health care and not worrying about, about critical sickness and illness constantly um creates that sort of worry creates inefficiencies in our economy and in our society as well um but from the political standpoint there's just there's been so much misinformation sown about uh about death panels and and those sorts of things coming out of um socialized medicine and and people have some distrust of of the medical society that you know from my from my side, from an insider's point of view, I'm sure I have my own particular bias, but um, I I don't really see people out there to make a quick buck because there's things you can do without going to school for 11 years um, to make money much faster. The people I see working there are um, very dedicated to maximizing patient health and doing their best to to help people out. So I don't think that I don't think that physicians are looking to make financial decisions at the expense of their patient's health. I think they're always putting their patients first and possibly always maximizing each, each person's um, health and, and optimizing their care is, is maybe part of why costs have, have been rising 
higher in this country than in others. But um, if other countries can come up with that sort of a situation, I don't see why America wouldn't be able to follow suit. For a lot of my thinking on healthcare, a lot of my brain comes back to how the world of capitalism might be to blame. (laughs) And I'm not trying to get on my anarchist stool here. But it feels like there are some systems that have just been put in place where if we were to just dismantle those and if the idea of like those there are I I imagine are doctors who do exist in this field that are out there to make a buck that are out there for um, perhaps negative reasons or selfish reasons that corruption might be why we're in the state we're in. Am I being too cynical? I think you are. I would I would I would fight back against that okay. a little I think I think that there are unscrupulous people in every industry and they occur at such a low rate that they can't really be held accountable for a giant system wide uh, problem such as such as our increasing and expanding healthcare costs. I think there's a lot of system systems-based issues that come into play. Um, I've already alluded to a few of those, you know, sort of mm-hmm. the redundancies and inefficiencies in health insurance and managing that system. Um, a lot of the advertising that's built into um, <laughs> mm-hmm. consumer uh, prescription drugs, which is just ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> uh, and really, really responsible for driving up the cost of prescription drugs. Um even the cost that um, you know that insurers are paying, even if the patients aren't paying that on their end, um, and I do I do find it to be an issue that that cost for both the patient and the physician are are kind of divorced from all their decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, we I try to make the most medically appropriate recommendations at all times, but um, there's there are much more many more gray areas in medicine than I think the the public is aware of. And there, there are some things that are clearly beneficial and there's some things that are clearly a waste of time and money. And there's a lot of things in between. And I think if there was more information available to consumers and providers that we might be able to uh, run the ship a bit more efficiently as well. All right, all right, all right. We're going to stop right there with the conversation with Greg to give you a music break. This is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. I reach out to music labels and see who's willing to just share some music for folks in the education field to get attached to newer and better music. I'll be honest, I judge and I want people listening to better music, so I bring up uh, independent DIY labels who are offering music for free, and I'm offering this space for free for them. And this week, uh, we're getting music from Near Mint Records. Near Mint Records was born in 2014 out of two small rooms in different parts of the country, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Charlottesville, Virginia, to be exact, and it has now grown to soundtrack its wide geography. 
After launching the careers of indie rock sur- uh, surveyors, The Obsessives and Broken Beak, the label has mapped out brand new territory, releasing an acoustic EP for the noted singer-songwriter writer Ricky Vadalato, a trip-hop collection for Jesse Etc., and cassettes and vinyl for Snow Roller, Grady Phillip Drug, We Love You, and a whole lot more. Uh, hip-hop releases even in the works, proving there's really no formula for this DIY venture. After all, passion isn't perfect. And today, I'm playing a song for you uh, from the new Boy Rex album. The song is called World Pulse Festival 1999. Uh, The new Boy Rex album is one of my favorite albums of the year so far. It's called Better Vision. It is absolutely beautiful. It is atmospheric. It is folksy. It's like if Death Cab played some post-rocky kind of stuff. Boy Rex is also currently on tour with Tyler Daniel Bean, another incredible uh, independent artist. And if you have a chance, go check them out on tour. I'm going to see them when they come through Boston in a couple weeks. Might even go to the Providence gig because it's going to be an awesome tour. So check them out. So if you like what you hear, support Near Mint Records. Go to wearenearmint.com or find We Are Near Mint on all forms of social media and you'll be able to stay up on all the new stuff that Near Mint Records is putting out. And now here's the song World Pulse Festival 1999 from Boy Rex. If I go tonight, do I leave behind? Does the earth still turn even when you die? Life I'll find on the other side. Am I fool to hope for another side? I haven't known God since I was still.
And now let's finish up this conversation with Greg Jungworth. All right. So when we were planning this talk, we got uh, we got onto the topic of mental health, which is really important to me, uh, to the work that I do um, in my job and with my nonprofit and my music, everything. And you shared some stuff that actually stood out to me a lot. Um, can you talk about the types of training you get in terms of interacting and supporting with supporting patients with mental health issues? And what sort of like protocol do you follow when you are kind of interacting with a patient you might suspect has some sort of mental health issue? Well, sure. Um, I think it's easier to tackle the second half of that question first, uh, given given the legal protections that doctors have and being able to maintain confidentiality with their patients. um, I'm really able to be very straightforward and candid about mental health, which is important. So um, we're constantly screening uh, for issues like depression and anxiety. Um, many, many patients I do not suspect have mental health problems are asked about it on a fairly routine basis just to ad- identify those issues when they, when they occur. Um, but we don't, we don't want to miss anybody because we do have effective treatments and, and want to be as supportive as we can. So um, I think it does help that because it's such a confidential space that we're able to ask very directly and mostly get uh, very direct answers. I've been been pretty amazed at how forthcoming people have been about their their problems and their issues and their insecurities and and wanting to seek help or or not wanting to seek help for various reasons. And uh, we just try to deal with it. Each person is an individual and and get them the help that they need and the help that they want. Um, as far as training for that, a lot of it unfortunately is is somewhat on the fly. Um, every Every medical student does a rotation through psychiatry, but that's uh, only eight weeks long and only just barely enough to give you, get your feet wet and to kind of understand the scope of, of mental health issues that can crop up. But um, in my field, in family medicine and in primary care, um, there is such chronic underfunding of mental health resources across the country, but especially here in the state of Washington, um, that... Uh, access to trained mental health providers is is somewhat strained, and even even when they have someone they can go see, often the waiting lists are prohibitive or at least extremely inconvenient to seeking time, uh, treatment in a timely manner. Um, so I help to fill that gap by doing a lot of um, basic management of depression and uh, anxiety issues, and trying to do some basic. Um, sort of uh, counseling and as much as identifying problems, doing doing some basic CBT that I've um, witnessed and try to replicate, working on sort of mindfulness techniques and things to um, help patients reduce their anxiety, as well as uh, having some, you know, having the ability to prescribe some medications, a lot of the more common antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. Um, I try not to get too fancy. I try to respect the expertise of the psychiatrist when I have one at my disposal, but um, often it's it's just me doing the best that I can. When has it kind of become an issue, or has it ever become an issue with someone kind of coming to you thinking they might have something wrong with them, but perhaps um, their mental health might be clouding that judgment? Have you ever had any instances like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say oftentimes those sorts of uh, those sorts of people are more apparent to their physicians than uh, and the physician recognizes what's going on faster than they're able to themselves. 
um, a lot of the um, the screening questions, um, the sorts of things we watch out for, um, poor sleep, poor appetite, poor motivation, sort of feelings of excessive guilt, or um, obviously more severe signs like um, suicidality or, or thoughts about that or thoughts of wanting to lash out and harm other people. Um, some people don't always identify those as, as being symptoms of a disease and uh, of a health issue. They just they just feel bad, and they oftentimes, if you just get someone to open up and vent a little bit in the room, um, they'll confess to a lot of those sorts of symptoms and help to identify themselves. Um, there can be other people who are who are maybe on the milder end of the spectrum that are confusing too. Um, you know, is something is somebody depressed, or are they just uh, are they just feeling a bit more malaised? Um, can they be? Could it be somebody who's just um, using substances in a way that's not healthy for them, that can have a pretty significant effect on mood, but it's not the same as, as primary mental health disorders. Um, and so screening for those other sorts of causes kind of helps us look for ways to intervene as well. Okay. Okay. When I, cause the work that I do, I interact with students um, who, so my job is, uh, I do mental health education and sexual health education, and every day is a little bit different, as I imagine yours is. And so there are some days where I'll be talking to someone who was recently sexually assaulted, or I, and so like when they come into my office, they could either be very, um, very kind of like depressed or blue or just really reserved. And I kind of have to ask them a little bit more about, so what, what's actually bringing you in here today? And then it gets out, comes out of them a little bit more naturally that way. And then there are some times when a student will legitimately come to my office mid panic attack. And I legitimately have to drop everything I'm doing uh, and help them come down just so that I can then take them to our counseling center. And those again, and actually what you're talking about, what you talked about, your, your, your training kind of being on the fly. I think that that's a lot of reality for people who do this sort of work, working with mental health um, uh, issues and issues of emotional wellness, because we, you can't really, I think, genuinely support someone until they're right in front of you with this issue. And I think one of the biggest traits that someone needs to have in doing that work is just genuine empathy um, and recognizing, hey, uh, okay, I, I don't know what you're feeling right now, but I can tell that what you're feeling is like kind of overwhelming you. Can you explain it a little bit more to me? And it takes a lot of patience. It's really hard, but I can see where if you had someone come to your practice where they're in the middle of one of those episodes and you're also trying to give them information about their like physical health, how all of that can just cloud and cause a bunch of gray areas. Like you were talking about earlier to expose themselves. Yeah. Well, certainly if, if somebody is, is presenting in an acute crisis, then, then that's the only thing we're dealing with that day. Uh, you've got to, be able to triage and, and pick the most important things first. Um, I would say that 
mostly in uh, in my field, in the primary care field, and the way that doctors' appointments are structured and and accessibility. There's usually at least a few hours between when someone is able to make an appointment and when they're actually able to be seen, and and so very rarely does someone in an acute crisis um, sit there behind my closed door and then and then have that sort of issue as soon as I walk in. Um, the main the main area where those people are presenting to try to get some help if they're not in your office is the emergency department um, because they just don't know where else to go. And actually, as far as I'm concerned, that probably is the most appropriate place for them to get to because emergency departments are are staffed with trained counselors um, who aren't doing things, doing their learning so much on the fly. They're very well versed in identifying acute um, dangers to somebody's health and helping get people calmed down and and also getting them plugged into the resources that they need, not just right now to to help relieve the acute crisis, but also to help try to prevent those um, from coming back in the future. Oh, oh yeah, and I imagine that, I mean, I'm, I'm making an assumption, but I imagine some folks might just straight up come to a doctor or a physician immediately and just be like, I'm having this thing happen to me right now. Can you get me to someone else? Does that happen fairly often or at all in your experience? I would say that that's a, a somewhat uncommon um, experience. I think, unfortunately, okay. that um, even patients who would benefit significantly from professional mental health providers are somewhat resistant um, to, to presenting themselves to a person like that. I think there's... I think it has something to do with the stigma of of not wanting to be somebody who needs a mental health professional. But they feel that they can go to their primary care doctor. They can. Everyone has a has a family doctor um, that they can go talk, and hopefully they can trust and and try to get help from that person. But there's an unfortunate amount of of resistance on the patient into seeking care at that level, as well as an unfortunate amount of uh, lack of resources. From mental health professionals being available to see the the quantity and the and the flow that we see. Well, and, uh, I think a lot of what you're talking to there involves a lot of stigma around just talking about mental health in general. Um, and I encounter that literally every day with my college students and coming from all different walks of life, different cultures, where they just don't talk about that stuff with anyone. Absolutely. Until it becomes like a real big issue. <laughs> yes, we've uh, we we every year have a an educational session, sort of on um, uh, cultural cultural competency and being able to handle culturally relevant healthcare issues. And uh, living in the area that I do, we we draw significantly from um, a Middle East immigrant and refugee population, um, and the term mental health is actually uh, extremely stigmatizing um, in that area. It doesn't mean depression and anxiety like it does here, where at least people have some understanding of what that is. I mean, it means somebody who needs to be put away, you know, into an asylum or or something like that. You know, it has a very, it has much more severe consequences, and so they uh, they will not respond well to terminology and even just changing the words around. Um, just talking, keeping it general, and talking about stress, or or talking about um, um, just like pressure, you know, pressure, but without without 
talking about it being related to mental health um, can help those people to open up and, and be a bit more accessible. Uh, exactly. And we, uh, in my work, we, we've been doing a lot more focus on how do we make talking about uh, mental health more accessible to folks who might not like that term. Uh, we, we actually do, we use uh, emotional wellness, um, which we, which our counselors, the people in our counseling center kind of um, have suggested is much more accessible, but less traumatizing word to use or term to use. Um, and we also talk about stress and um, we talk, I stress a lot about balance, how to find balance in your life. Workshops for days is my life, basically. <laughs> sure, I think I think there's a lot to be said for for that sort of terminology that you're referencing. Um, yeah, because it's not so much what you call it as as what's actually going on. Oh, for sure. Okay, now to to wrap up the conversation a little bit, I always like to end with a huge question that has way too many parts and is impossible to answer, but. We talked a little bit about having simple answers for this big complex issue of healthcare. What do you, where do you think we go from here in terms of making healthcare more transparent and accessible for folks who need it and are worried about r- the rising costs of like everything? Well, you're right. That's a, that's a <laughs> difficult one to answer in a succinct <laughs> manner. Uh, I would say that, um, the most important thing that we can do as uh, a society, if not at the physician level, is um, widespread education of the public about um, sort of healthy activities and healthy lifestyle choices, as well as dispelling a lot of the uh, sort of misinformation there is out there about, you know, the sort of modern day snake oils um, and all the all those products out there that are supposed to make you feel amazing and, and make you super healthy, but they cost you a hundred dollars a month, um, or more sometimes. And, and honestly are not doing that much for you. That's, that's draining an extraordinary amount of resources, um, from people who, who would be much better off using their hundred dollars a month just to buy some fresh produce and, and experiment with some, more more vegetables and and fresh home cooking and and having that sort of thing in their life. It's honestly so much uh, in my experience so much cheaper to eat that way too than getting a bunch of fast food all the time. Sure. Um or investing in like essential oils and stuff like that. No, just like get get some apples and some celery or some broccoli. Yeah, it kind of depends on who you are. This is a whole other can of worms. Going oh, into for sure. <laughs> of, of, uh, of food deserts and, and that sort of accessibility mm. of, of fresh foods and how it can be more expensive in, in the populations often that need them the most, um, that would have the most to benefit. Um, oh my gosh, that's a whole other conversation. Wow, I need to find someone to talk to about that. <laughs> it's, uh, you, you, got a, you asked a big question and you got a big answer. Oh my God, Greg. <laughs> I will, I will, I will, I will argue one, one other point that you made in that, uh, unfortunately, in terms of calories per cost, fast food is some of the most affordable, um, I'm going to put air quotes around the word nutrition, uh, (laughs) the most, most affordable calories per dollar that, that is accessible. And for, for people who, um, 
are just getting by, um, saving a couple dollars here or there, and being able to keep their children from losing weight often will will go that route. But it's it's unfortunately setting the setting the precedent and setting the tone for um, unhealthy choices and and unfortunately a lot of health concerns down the road. Oh, oh, it hurts my heart. It hurts my heart a little bit. Yeah, I will. I will add one one thing on here. Somebody who's who's clever and creative and and isn't necessarily me um, should find should think should spend some real time thinking about ways to incentivize people to make more uh, more healthy choices. Because for I will say to the extent that that information is is known in the public. People still don't like to make healthy decisions. They still don't like to exercise and eat a lot of healthy foods um, because your body is just programmed to reward you for high calories and conserving energy and, and doing those sorts of fast reward type things. So I think I think if someone had some creative ways to reward you in real time for making healthy choices instead of trying to always talk about your heart condition 30 years down the road, which people don't respond to, I think that would be another way um, that resources could be used very well. Oh, yeah. We, we, we use like one incentivized, like we, we kind of gamified the way we do sexual education at UMass Boston, and it kind of rewards students for coming to talks or uh, doing like online quizzes and stuff. We give them like gift cards and whatnot, and it mm-hmm. has actually shown like a big increase in their knowledge around sexual health. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. It's it's some fairly basic psychology, but it's very effective. Yeah. Okay. Now, some lightning round fun. I'm going to ask you about seven things. You can answer them off the top of your head. Okay. Favorite food? Type of food? Uh, there's so many choices. <laughs> I'm going to I'm I'm going to be a terrible physician and say bacon. Oh, okay. Um, favorite vacation spot? Uh, somewhere in the mountains, but during the summertime when it's not too freezing cold. Um, your favorite movie all time? Snatch. Oh, buddy. Love it. Favorite book current and all time? Are you reading much these days? I am. I have just completed the entire anthology of Kurt Vonnegut. Oh wow! Kurt Vonnegut is my is my one true personal author hero, and I love him to the end of the world. He, I would say, of his of his works, my favorite was probably "God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater." Um, okay, which is it just made me feel good inside, which I don't think it's supposed to. I think it's supposed to make you feel terrible, um, <laughs> which is a chunk of his works. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting and insightful. Um, and it's in the long game, it's, uh, it's rivaled by the Harry Potter series, which I'm very nostalgic for still. Oh yeah, for sure. I remember how frustrated you were when I think you found the sixth one was ruined or the seventh one. Oh, oh, I'm going to out my little sister right here. And I hope she hears this (laughs) Entire country's about to know that I went to Orders and bought the sixth book at midnight when it was released and then because I'm a good person I gave it to her to read first and she gave it back two days later and said Snape kills Dumbledore have fun <laughs> she oh my gosh a terrible person oh my gosh 
I well, my partner Katie uh, still hasn't read. I think either the sixth or seventh because there was a similar someone similarly spoiled the book for them uh, while they were waiting to get the book. I think it's ridiculous. People are monsters. Yeah, you may have to edit in a, a small spoiler alert just in case someone somehow hasn't read that part. Yeah. Whatever. All right. Now, favorite album, music album. Routinely go back to Deja Entendu by Brand New. Yeah. Classic. Okay. Now, this might be a controversial one for you. Actually, these last two are going to be a little controversial for you, I think. Sure. Um, college sports team. Well, it has to be Notre Dame. There's not really any okay. question. All right, I wasn't sure. Yeah, Notre Dame, and then uh, the University of Oregon after that, and Ohio State, unfortunately, takes third fiddle. And that issue came up very pointedly when Oregon and Ohio State played each other in the football championship a few years ago. (laughs) I remember. I remember you were having some issues with that. (laughs) That's right. Okay, now the last one. I know you're a big James Bond fan, or maybe you were. I don't know if you still are. I still dabble. What is your favorite James Bond film? Oh, of all the films? Uh, of all the films. And why And why is it Goldeneye? <laughs> and why is it? <laughs> Goldeneye is undoubtedly in the top three. I would have to put um, Skyfall up there with, with oh. Craig. I thought that was an exceptional movie. Um, and I also have um, always been very partial to The Man with the Golden Gun back from the Roger Moore era. Um, I know none of those three has Sean Connery, and that makes me somewhat of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a, a not, not a true believer or something like that. But uh, <laughs> I would say I would say all of those uh, do very well for, um, for good characters and good drama and um, not being too, too ridiculous. Although I have a hard time uh, standing up for anything from the Roger Moore era because that seemed to be when all the gadgets came out and sense just completely went out the window. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> okay, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I'm glad we got this done. I'm so excited for the conversation we had. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Craig. Oh, wow. That's the end. That's it. That was the episode. We did it. We got through another one. That was such a fun conversation. I learned so much from Greg. I always do. He's the smartest person I know. Probably the smartest person I've ever known. And holy crap. I was really glad that we got to take a good hour and a half out of our uh, our day last week to just chat and talk and catch up a bit. It was really nice, and I hope you all enjoyed the conversation, get to hear the side of uh, of a doctor that perhaps some folks never get to have that kind of conversation with the doctor. I've never really had a conversation with a doctor like that, so it was nice to hear Greg's perspectives on things. Again, we're we're two white dudes that are pretty progressive, so I understand that like some of our uh, our opinions are gonna uh, mirror e- each other. But I'm thankful we had a little bit of disagreement on the whole capitalism of healthcare. That was really nice to have a, a little bit of difference 
in, in, in the conversation. But again, I'm, I'm really thankful for, for Greg taking the time out to chat with me. If you want to reach out to him, let me know. I'll connect you with him. And beyond that, share the conversation with folks. Uh, rate, review us on iTunes. Uh, if you are on Pocket Cast, tell more people on Android that it's on Pocket Cast. That's a thing. That's how my Android friends are listening. And yeah, follow on Instagram at edupunkspod, E-D-U-P-U-N-X-Pod. Or you can follow me at Bidman, C-R-I-G-B-I-D-I-D-M-A-N. It's a fun misspelling of my name. I love it. Make sure to check out mattpalmermedia.com if you need any sort of design work done. Matt does some great stuff. He just quit his job, so he needs as many commissions as possible to keep him paying his bills. And that's what I'm doing, giving him some free ad space because I am a good friend. Check out mattpalmermedia.com. And yeah, if you liked the music today, uh, check out Near Mint Records. Uh, they have they are putting out a whole bunch more music this year. Keep following up with them. You'll probably hear them uh, again on this podcast in a few more weeks. But uh, I'm going to leave you with another song from Boy Rex. And I hope you all have a good week. We'll be back next week with another conversation. And until then, let's get to work. The sun's been coming down for a while now. And the sky is cracked. And though the warmth is gone. Stretch my hands to get it back The fear has made me small And even on the tips of my toes I'm not tall enough to reach above The pale blue fence in the backyard I'm a child again peering through the clouds beyond the steeple the sounds of the birds singing songs like they don't know we're all doomed to die I guess I've been gifted with the curse of better vision I'm blind in both my eyes but I can see what I've been